This is podcast 378, entitled fetchingly, PZ's Mature Thoughts Concerning Rock and Roll. And I do, in fact, want to talk a little bit about pop music. And uh, you know how much I love it, and I know how much you love it. And um, I uh, am such a fan, by the way, of uh, uh, David uh, Zoll and his colleague Lindsay's um, well of Sound uh, podcast, which is an absolutely must. I mean, they talk about a deep bench when it comes to popular rock and roll and other forms of pop music. It's the best. But I do want to reflect now at a <clears throat> certain age on the music that I love, uh, and not so much the specifics of it, but the, um, the reasons for it. And I now understand it better, and I think... I believe I can touch a chord inside you when I uh, say what I feel that I've learned. And what we just heard, by the way, was um, um, you're going to carry that weight. Boy, you're going to carry that weight a long time, which is um, Booker T and the MG's contemporaneous sort of version of Abbey Road that they called Macklemore Avenue. It is an absolutely supernal, transcendent piece of contemporary late 1960s rock and roll that was inspired, but through the filter of uh, Booker T, who was so remarkable, um, and a particularly fine guitarist that he had with him. 
um, to sort of put their stamp on something that had moved them, and it sure moved me. I mean, Abbey Road, if anyone who lived through that era, which is really the <clears throat> very late 60s and the early 70s, will know how much Abbey Road really was the quintessential album emotionally of all time. And um, Booker T caught it, and then he added something to it about which I wish to speak, because the first uh, section of what we hear boy, you're going to carry that weight, uh, speaks directly to me, although <clears throat> although I didn't hear it at the time. I heard the song upon which it was based, but uh, it uh, created a tremendous connection within my own psyche. And then <clears throat> what we'll hear at the end, um, uh, Here Comes the Sun, in immediately following uh, in the track on Macklemore Avenue by Booker T and the MGs, and you all see what I'm talking about. And what I want to talk about is this. Guys get caught up, and it is to some extent a gender uh, issue in experience. I mean, it just—it just is. It's not something I might wish, and it's not something you might wish, and it's not something that is ideal. But it is the case. It is simply an observation, like when you're looking at a sickness inside a person. You want a doctor who can diagnose what's really happening, not what the doctor or you think ought to be happening or ought not to be happening. I see this with people all the time, and the diagnosis is right, then everything is right. Well. <laughs> I've learned <clears throat> that all the facts about the music we loved as kids, because most of it is music we loved when we were younger, all the facts and the, back, uh, the backing tracks and who was doing the vocals and who was doing the bass and how it was produced and when it was produced and when it was released and all the other little fun facts about everything you want to name, <clears throat> from the monkeys to um, uh, some of the groups that I adore, New Colony 6, I'm just hooked on from that era. But when you see, um, when you really look at the music you love, especially from the past, because when you get older, it just is. That's just the music you gravitate towards, too. It's what the world calls oldies, but they're not oldies to you. They are, to quote someone we love forever young. And um, you love the music, not for the music itself, it turns out. <clears throat> but for the person that you were when you heard the music. You connect with the music on the basis of the emotional state within you that was there when the music was first heard. Who were you when you first heard, um, um, boy, you're going to carry that weight, or um, come together, for that matter, on the other side of it, or... Um, what we'll hear at the end, where were you, who were you, and you find that the music that you absolutely love, and I guarantee, now let me, how can I say this in a way that doesn't sound presumptive, I invite you to look at your Spotify playlists, and your <clears throat> playlists on iTunes, or however you keep your music, and uh, at a certain stage of the game, I want you to ask yourself, how are you filtering it, what is the music that you really love, I mean, I've got all sorts of playlists that, you know, feeling, one is called, to quote Samantha Sang and the Bee Gees, or um, stirring, what stirs me, or such and such a person, or some colleague, <laughs> some place that you lift. But again, just like in Summer of 42, it's not the um, place it's the person that you were in that place at that time when you encountered that music. Now, you may disagree, but I really want to ask you to look carefully at it. The music that you respond to the most that continues to have an effect upon you is a statement not anywhere near as much about the music itself, which exists and had to be created by, you know, 
Dennis Yost and the Classics Four, let alone, uh, you know, Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh. Uh, it's got to be, uh, you heard it, it really was created. You didn't create the music. But <clears throat> sort of like Luke uh, cutting to the Death Star, the music got in. And the reason it got into your heart was because you were at a point of vulnerability or needing to hear what I had to say. It, 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 you associate it with who you were at a vulnerable, impressionable state of mind. And that's really all that this is um, about. Now, the reason Macklemore Avenue touches me so, what I find the more and more I do play, gosh, I do, I do probably two new playlists every day of my life, seven days a week. And then I go back a week later and I scrap two thirds of them. Some of them stay. A playlist associated with Mary, for example, that will stay. Or a playlist associated with um, our children, uh, certain experiences, or where we were when one of our children became ill, or where we were when we were dealing with an impossible um, church that was uh, in, where we, in which we were not supported by the rector, to say the least, etc., etc. Um, and <clears throat> that's the music that uh, emotionally creates a powerful um, impression and it never leaves you and when you hear it you still cry when you hear it you're still sometimes you, when you hear it you're still mad but you're not going to listen to that music all your life believe me the music that, that hit you when you were in a state of extreme polemic ire will not be the music that you listen to when you're dying or when you're 50 or even now <laughs> the music that you listen to is when you were in love or when you were lost or when you were sad and you were comforted when yeah, you associated with some person or some place where you found hope and help. And I'll give you a, a very um, direct example in, uh, in uh, just a minute. But interestingly enough, the reason Macklemore Avenue has had such an impact on me recently, and I never heard it when it came out in 1969-70, it, it came out literally within just a few months of the release of Abbey Road, and so it, it, it's of the era um, but because it, it, because it was made right then and was under the direct influence of the tunes that were touching me very, very deeply at a point in my life when I was very um, impressionable, to say the least, um, I hear that and there's a kind of uh, power. It, it's a slightly fresh expression of something that I already know and like a, a, a bomb that dropped in whatever the time of uh, Abbey Road. But this is the same bomb. It's, it's just a slight variation on it. And because it came at the same time, it, it has, believe it or not, <clears throat> it doesn't have any new or fresh vibes. It's clearly of the era. You'll listen to it and you'll understand. Now, I want to give you one more example, and then I'm going to close with a um, slightly longish excerpt from the conclusion of the track we just heard, which was, uh, I moved it up um, to the beginning of uh, Boy, You're Going to Carry That Weight, which is so prognosticative in my own life. Uh, whatever was going on in college, uh, and maybe you can identify whatever happened in this or that time period or with this or that person or with this or that place or this or that activity. It may be a wound that you're still carrying. Believe me, many people have wounds that they're still carrying from youth. Oh, duh, but it's really, I'm not, I'm one. Uh, we all have them. Everybody who's listening to this. Mary has them. Our children have them. Our sons, I mean, our grandchildren will have them. Our parents have them. Our sisters and brothers have them. They're different. But everyone carries something that was needed to be abreacted and assimilated, needs to be. Well, um, I'll give you this one example. 
when I think of Mary, I uh, all I need to hear is one particular cut, and it's not what you think. Uh, and I am catapulted immediately and to the point of tears from the very first chord of this particular music. You know, I may end uh, the uh, cast with that. That's, thank you, Lord. You've given me an idea. But you find yourself... Um, all I need to do is listen to the first two... less than the first measure of this particular music, and I am utterly... I'm in tears about our love and our marriage. And let me tell you what it is. We were... Uh, at a parish in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. It was my first parish, quote. I was uh, the, what they called the deacon in training. I'd been ordained a deacon, and you had in those days a deacon's year, and then you'd be ordained a priest, and that happened in my case as well. And we were sent to the wrong parish. Um, I had misunderstood, as often happens. You, The first impression was wrong, and I thought they really wanted me. They wanted me for the wrong reasons, it turned out. But when we got there to this little <coughs> small um, but very, very, um, I would call it mainstream Episcopal parish in Silver Spring, Maryland, it turned out that they had really wanted us for wrong reasons, and uh, especially me. And uh, my theology was evangelical. I hope it was loving and pastoral. It was deeply pastoral. I, I feel certain of that because the evidence was there. But we were very... Uh, we, were, we suddenly realized that the rector and the director of Christian education and three or four um, leading members of the church suddenly thought that, oh my gosh, we've got a Baptist. We thought we were getting this particular kind of Episcopalian, but uh-oh, we, we've really got a, a Southern Baptist. No, they didn't. They had an evangelical Anglican who had been trained very deeply and pastorally by people like Frank Lake and Colin Buchanan and George Carey in a... Um, wonderful, charismatic in the specific sense in the church, charismatic evangelical sense within the Church of England. And uh, all of a sudden they heard me talk about um, the Christian faith and the gospel in a way that superficially reminded them of the very things that they had reacted against and had gone to the Episcopal Church to avoid. And suddenly they said, oh my gosh, this is we, we, we brought in a, a Southern Baptist who looks Episcopalian, but that's why we wanted him. But Oh, my gosh. And we were persecuted. We were actively persecuted. We were horribly persecuted. And finally, when the half the parish, and I'm not exaggerating, started coming to our midweek Bible study in our apartment because we couldn't meet at the church. The rector, we didn't want that. And almost half the parish was coming every Wednesday night to our Bible study that Mary and I co-lit in our little apartment that was jammed. It was like that scene in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, when the fellow falls out of the window. It was that jammed. It was. And, uh, and then the rector summoned me in and he said, you know, Paul, um, I'm, you have to stop this Bible study. I'm calling an end to it. No more. This Bible study has to cease to exist as of now. So our ministry was completely cut off at the knee, as they say. And, um, and then we had other terrible <clears throat> um, attacks on us. They just refused to let me do anything because of what they thought. And then we were rescued by Fitz Allison and Grace Church New York. But what would happen? I would. We also had a youth group, and the youth group thrived. The youth group was filled with young high school students who were responded. They responded to Mary's and my ministry, and especially to mine, because most of the time it was just me on Sunday night. So I would come home, having had a good time, but the other youth workers just hated what we were trying to help these kids discover. And um, 
they were sort of older uh, ladies in the church, both of whom had been Southern Baptists uh, or something the equivalent of that and had reacted against that. And then they heard me come and the kids responded and it was, ah! But I'd come home on a um, on a Sunday night around 8.30 and just worn out, especially because of the stress of the negativity and the opposition. <clears throat> and it happened that Masterpiece Theater in its very early days, having just done uh, Upstairs, Downstairs, was uh, on Sunday nights, was... Uh, showing The Pallisers, the wonderful 1974 BBC series, The Pallisers, which is wonderful and has like 23, 24 episodes. And we, I would watch it with Mary. And it was so powerful. And it was, that was the life. That's how we, that, that was our life. I mean, we identified with the human drama of The Pallisers from England. And it was just the best. It was a salvation to us. And it, um, and, and it had this theme by a fellow named Herbert Chappell, C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. And this theme was unbelievably evocative. It's a very beautiful lyrical theme, and I'm going to play it at the end of the cast. And they would they would start it with a sort of one and a half minute, <clears throat> two minute excerpt from the theme from the Pallisers, and then it would always end on the closing titles with this theme. And so the theme, because music always gets to you, because it's nonverbal. And so every time after that very impossible year when we were just creamed, and we were just young, we, I wasn't priested, I was taken away. We were just, we, we gave everything to these people. We wanted to give everything. We really meant it. And uh, they just wiped their feet on us horribly. <clears throat> and um, we became their scapegoat for everything bad in their lives. That was just the leadership, not the parish. The parish as a whole responded. But it was just here we were bringing some, we were so innocent and so young and so exuberant and so hopeful and so artless and so innocent. And uh, so I hear that and we continue to be. I, I trust we are in a deep way still. So all it needs to be is for me. Isn't that classic? <clears throat> Mary needed to go out and get her hair done, which is important. And um, um, bang. Um, so, you know, and I don't really plan. I mean, this is not sort of done in a studio. I hope that lends some verisimilitude to whatever I'm saying. But so I listen to this thing from the Pallisers, which is about the most beautiful thing in the world. But why do I like it? Do I like it because Herbert Chappell uh, did beautiful music? Well, yes, he did. Uh, I didn't create that. But when I hear it, I cry because I see these two very young, just starting out um, ministers, Mary and me, doing our best with 100% of what we had been given humanly to reach out and help. And um, it makes me cry because I, I think of the love that was there. I think of our common cause. I think, I think of the burn that we got together. I think of the way we shared that time, that very vulnerable time, and we were very young together. I was ordained at the youngest possible age a person could be ordained in the Episcopal Church. Um, very often I'll mention somebody who's been dead for like 20 years and I say, oh, I knew them for 30. <laughs> what? You know, that's like talking about Abraham Lincoln or something. And I turns out that I knew them just because of that. But so I hear it and I'm going to play it for you. And I ask you not to love this music, but you'll like it. But it's to um, think of the music that you really love. Think of the music that you really love and your best Spotify playlist, the one that really speaks to your whole heart, and see where it comes from. See what the origin of your love is, and that way you'll learn about yourself, and you'll learn about your soul, which is the most important thing, because my favorite podcast, sorry, Spotify, um, iTunes playlist of all time, is the one entitled Soul. Love you so much.